Um, so time for questions. Do introduce yourself um, and please indicate who would like to ask the first question. Thank you, yes. Yes, um, you talked about that campaign being hard fought. Um, given the recent publicity and some of the comments about the Yes campaign, how do you personally feel the Yes campaign is doing at this moment? I don't think we're winning yet, uh, to be perfectly frank about it, but I think we will win. Uh, look, we're in a, a long uh, campaign. It's, uh, it's very different to an election campaign because it's a campaign that spans... Uh, still got 16 months to go and it's been going for quite some time. Uh, so as we set out uh, the arguments over the next few months, I'm, uh, I'm very confident that we'll, we'll win those arguments. I, I think of the campaign, I think, in, in three phases. We had, uh, prior to the Edinburgh Agreement, a phase that was very much about process, about settling the uh, mechanics of the referendum. We now have some legislation going through Parliament, but essentially these matters, uh, assuming parliamentary approval, are, are pretty much settled. The franchise, the question, the fact that it is a single yes-no question. Uh, we're now in, I think, the evidence phase where you've got a UK government uh, and the Scottish government producing papers, many of them very lengthy and detailed, setting out our case on key issues, and that will continue uh, from now through the summer, uh, culminating from the Scottish government perspective in the publication of our white paper in the autumn of this year, which will be the prospectus for independence, answering uh, a range of questions that people want answers to. Uh, after that, I think we go into the final stage of, of the campaign, which is about persuasion uh, and, I hope, a bit of excitement as Scotland takes this decision. I mean, one of the things I uh, often say to people is that, almost regardless of whether you're on the yes or the no, or like many people, the undecided uh, camp at the moment, what Scotland is living through right now is incredibly exciting for, for two reasons. One, it's giving us the opportunity to do something that very few countries get the chance to do. Take a good, long, hard look at ourselves, ask ourselves some pretty fundamental questions about the kind of country, economy, society we want to be, and then work out the best constitutional arrangements that we think, uh, that we think are best to get there. And secondly, the eyes of the world are on us, and that's, that's great for a whole variety of reasons. There's barely a day goes by just now when there's not some international journalist or another wanting to know what's happening in Scotland. And, you know, we saw yesterday the study I, I referred to in, in my speech, the Ernst & Young Attractiveness Study, showing that far from the referendum putting off foreign investment, it may actually be working in our favour because we have that increased profile on the international stage. So uh, that's what I think of the campaign so far. It's what I think of how the campaign will develop. Uh, and we'll see what happens on September the 18th. But uh, let's see. I'm feeling very optimistic and excited about it. Very good. We have a question over there. Thank you for your speech. Um, my name is Adam Biden. I'm a member of the School of History Classics and Archaeology. Um, there are two points that I wanted to ask you about. The first was on the world looking at us right now, this unique situation that we're in. And the second, your discussion about the status quo in the UK. Um, I'm a recent immigrant to, to Scotland. Um, and one of the points that I've been thinking about is the powerful and important contribution that Scottish politicians, artists, intellectuals have made to Europe, um, to, well, to the West, um, and to global development over the past centuries, partly through their ability to speak as politicians in the UK government, whether they're leading the UK government, or they're cabinet ministers in the UK government, or they've been promoted in the UK government. And it's been, I think, quite obvious to a lot of us that the relationship between Scotland and England, or Scotland and the UK, has developed and evolved over time, so as the British Constitution has evolved. 
evolve over time. So the Scottish, the, the status quo, you talk about seems to be a status quo that's really always changing. It's not that static really at all. And as for the unique moment we're in, it seems like we're in a time right now where so many nations of the world are fighting with each other, fighting amongst themselves and struggling with their independence movements. Um, and they're making arguments of all kinds about why they should secede from a union and secede from the federal government. And I think it's really important for Scotland not just to looking at what's our, in our own best interest as people who live in Scotland, but looking at what kind of an example we're setting to our neighbours and to our friends and to those countries who are watching us and thinking about us. Um, and so I'm wondering about what that example would look like when we cast around and see these other countries who are thinking about what's in their own individual best interest rather than thinking what's in the best interest of our neighbourhood. Um. I'll take those two points uh, in the order you asked them. I mean, you're absolutely right. Scottish politicians individually have made a big impact and made their mark on the UK stage and the European stage and the, the world stage. And um, that's something we should be proud of and, and celebrate. I don't think it changes the institutional democratic deficit that I, I spoke about uh, in my, my speech. I suppose I'd say two things beyond that. One is that you know, there's nothing to stop individuals, Scottish individuals, continuing to do that if, if they so want, standing for Parliament to, in England after Scotland's an independent country, being in the UK government. For goodness sake, we've just sworn in a French person to the Scottish Parliament. So, you know, nothing would prevent Scottish people continuing to make their mark in that way. But the second point I would make is I would actually hope that, you know, these uh, fantastic towering giants of uh, UK politics, had we been independent, would actually have chosen to stand for Parliament here in Scotland. And I hope in the future people like Douglas Alexander, for example, might see his future in the Scottish Parliament and think that he could make as big an impact and as big a contribution in the Scottish Parliament. And I think our politics, I think our institutions of government will be hugely enhanced when we get uh, all of Scotland's available talent pool wanting to practice their politics and make their contribution here in Scotland. That does not mean that they cannot make the contribution on the wider stage uh, from uh, that starting position. In terms of your, your second point, I mean, I, I think the one thing I, I would want to say emphatically, we're not fighting with each other. We might be debating with each other and arguing with each other, but, you know, never in the uh, entire history of the Scottish uh, nationalist, the modern Scottish nationalist movement, has, has anybody lost their life or, you know, suffered a, an injury. It is an entirely peaceful democratic process and I think that is something all of us uh, should be intensely proud of and intensely determined to ensure is always uh, the case. And I'm going to pay tribute here to the UK government, something that you will not always or very often hear me, me doing. The Edinburgh Agreement uh, is a great tribute to the Scottish government but also to the UK government. If you compare and contrast the position in Scotland to Catalonia for example, what we have here in Scotland and it is almost unique is an agreed democratic process by which the people of Scotland, if they so choose, can opt to become independent. And when I say an agreed process, I mean agreed by the Scottish Government and by the UK Government who want to uh, prevent and persuade people not to go down that path. I think that is something that does set the world an incredibly good example. And as well as making sure that how we conduct this debate uh, presents us in a good light to the rest of the world. We shouldn't shy away from reminding people that the process of getting here and the process we will undergo uh, up to September next year also shows us an incredibly good light, and I mean that for the UK government as well as 
for the Scottish Government. And finally, I think we should always think about uh, our place in the wider world. I, I think any individual, politician, country, community uh, in taking decisions should always think about its effect on others rather than uh, as opposed to just uh, their effect on, on us here. And I think Scotland... Uh, rejoining the world as an independent country can be a great force for good in the country. We're a small country. We'll work with partners uh, to uh, make sure that we advance common interests. But Scotland, speaking with its own voice in the world, uh, I think can be a, a force for good. And I think that would be good not just for Scotland, uh, but for Europe and for the world as well. For that, Judy. I'm sorry, I couldn't see where I was desperately trying to see where you were in the, the audience. So, uh, my apologies. Hello. Um, on, on immigration, I I think one of the benefits of independence is that we get to take decisions around immigration, for example, uh, on the basis of what best suits our circumstances. And under devolution, we have uh, very limited ability to do that, almost no ability to do that. I see Susan Deacon of former minister in the first Scottish administration in the audience, and I think it was the first administration that uh, deployed the F Fresh Talent Initiative, trying to uh, use a bit of differentiation to make Scotland more attractive to students. Now, independence would give us uh, the ability to uh, design an immigration system, I think, that was uh, better uh, tailored and connected to our uh, employment needs, the needs we have for skilled uh, labour, and, and make sure it was catering for our circumstances in that regard. On the other side of that equation, we would be uh, continuing to be in the common travel area uh, with other parts of the UK and we need to be mindful of that in ensuring uh, that we uh, take decisions with uh, that in mind as well. But it gives us that flexibility uh, and flexibility for education reasons as well as employment reasons that I think would be important. Uh, in terms of the uh, question about women, I, I always kind of slightly hesitate before I try to answer this question because inevitably uh, the answer sounds as if I'm making gross generalisations about women and men and I, I, I don't like doing that I don't like hearing uh, gross generalisations about women so I, I certainly don't like making them uh, Why do the polls show that women are, are less inclined to support independence? The honest answer is I, I, I don't know I can offer you a, um, an opinion I, I think probably arguments um, that women will be uh, most uh, interested in I think are the arguments about what independence or the status quo mean for them as individuals, for their families, for their children, uh, for their, their grandchildren, for their communities. Uh, and I think the debate uh, at that level is what women uh, will engage in. Perhaps men are, are more interested in some of the arguments we've been talking about previously this evening about Scotland's uh, place in the world. So our strategy will be to make the case for independence relevant to the lives of everybody living in Scotland. 
because uh, it isn't an abstract constitutional debate. It is about how we get the powers we need to build a better country, to make sure we've got an economy that's growing to support the kind of society we want to see. And I think if we get the argument to that level, I believe we'll see uh, women with their eye very much on the future uh, supporting the cause. Next question here. Yeah, no. Angus, Angus Gross. Um, I think I represent the smallest parties. Um, I was interested in your... Uh, reference to the language of devolution and the debate at that time, some of the arguments which are uh, resurrecting themselves now. And it chimed with reading from the press recently um, that Michael Forsyth had talked about uh, the referendum uh, was leading to a slippery slope. Um, that's an old cliche which is uh, Survived surprisingly. Uh, I always found myself that slippery slopes were tempting and uh, often exciting. <laughs> you could take one into interesting places, uh, although my unkind friends uh, often point this out to me. Um, perhaps there's something in the language of political science that uh, is above my new understanding. Thank you, Angus. I was uh, wondering when you said at the outset that you were a representative of one of the smaller parties, if that was the Angus Grossart party or uh, whatever. Anyway, I, I don't know that I... I don't know... Thank you for that question. It was, uh, it's an important one because I think it does get to uh, one of the points I was making about, you know, when you're... I suppose when you're trying to argue the case for change, you're always, you've always got the harder job to do. The ones who've got the easiest job to do are the ones who are defending the status quo because uh, something that is not the status quo can always be presented as unknown and uncertain and risky and a leap in the dark or a slippery slope, whatever the language you want to use. Um, and that's what I, I hesitate to try and explain anything that's ever been in Michael Forsyth's head, but um, I'll have a go. <laughs> you know, what he's trying to do there is conjure up this idea in people's heads that you don't know what the destination is once you take, put your foot on that slippery slope you don't know where you'll end up and it might be at the bottom of a broken leg for example, that's what he's trying to do the argument, or the point I was making earlier on is we've been here before as a country, in the fairly recent past, these are exactly the arguments that were made in 1997, the people of Scotland saw through them, rose above them and opted for a Scottish Parliament and those arguments have been proved not just a little bit wrong, they've been proved 100% wrong. Because what we have demonstrated is that when we take power into our own hands, then like most other countries around the world, we tend to not always get it right, but get it right more than we would if we left power somewhere else. Because we're in tune with what the country needs and what the aspirations of the country are, and we can take better decisions. And I believe that would be equally true of independence. Because if you can run the health service, as I believe we do, albeit it's a complex organisation that has its challenges, 
every single day. But I think we run the health service better in Scotland uh, than we would uh, see if it was left in the hands of the Westminster Parliament. I think the same is true of our university sector. So if we can do these things better by taking power into our own hands, then I don't get the argument that says actually other things like the welfare system or the economy have to be left in the hands of another government because somehow Scotland would muck them up. We've proved we can do it. The question now is do we want to do it all or just some of it? Thank you. Um, my name is Nick Willem and I'm from the depths of South East England from Canterbury but I'm a visiting fellow here uh, at the Institute for the Advanced Studies and Humanities and I'd just like to hear you talk a little bit about what you see the role of the SNP being in an independent Scottish political system. That's a very good question, one that's always asked. My view is very simple. The SNP will continue uh, as a political party. We will contest uh, elections. I hope we will be the first government of an independent Scotland, although there's no guarantee of that. We certainly will not be the government of an independent Scotland forever in a day, I'm pretty sure it uh, will be the case, but we will uh, contest elections. Why do I say that? Because, yes, the SNP uh, was formed and has as a core principle the attainment of Scottish independence, but it's not all the SNP is about. The modern SNP is a social democratic party with a particular outlook on life, particular perspectives on economic policy and social policy. We're the only mainstream party, for example, uh, now in the Scottish Parliament that continues to defend the universal principle in terms of, of the benefit system. Uh, so we've got a distinctive voice and a distinctive offering to make and we'll continue to make that in an independent Scotland. But the the whole point of independence is that we get to choose our governments uh, and we get to kick them out if we, we don't like them and, uh, and that's what uh, will be the case when we're independent. Right. Next question. Deputy First Minister, thank you very much for your speech. Very interesting. Um, I'm Angus Miller, a student at St Andrews University and uh, I study international relations, so looking at foreign policy and the way that the international system works. Uh, the latter part of your speech was, uh, I believe you can characterise that as about foreign policy and about, you spoke about the new renewed partnership between Scotland and the other parts of the British Islands. I was wondering if you could perhaps speak a little about what your, your vision or the SNP's vision is for foreign policy in a, in a wider sense. For example, uh, would you look to cooperate more closely with the Nordic nations? Or would you, what kind of role would you see Scotland playing on the world stage is basically the question I'm asking. Thank you. Firstly, I suppose what I was speaking about towards the end of my lecture, I, maybe this is just a, a perspective thing, I wouldn't necessarily characterise as foreign policy. I, I'll put my hands up and cards on the table here. Scotland, if Scotland becomes independent after the referendum next year, I will never in my heart or my head think of England as a foreign country. It will be one of our partners. Um, will be an independent country. I, you know, England legally doesn't regard the Republic of Ireland as a, a foreign country. So I don't think of that as, as foreign policy. I think it, it, of it as independent, equal partners uh, taking power and responsibility but coming together to advance their, their mutual interests. In terms of your um, question about foreign policy, though, I, I do think that our closest allies on the international stage will be the other countries of the UK. I mean, that's true because of our geographic and therefore strategic position. It's true because of our cultural affinity um, and a whole range of, of other things. I think there will be uh, a very uh, strong need for Scotland to cooperate with other uh, Nordic countries, for example. The uh, High North is becoming more of a, a geostrategic uh, issue. Scotland is 
uh, both uh, intensely interested in that because of our geography, but incredibly well placed to play a part in the development of, of policy there. We'll be close partners uh, with our European uh, friends in the European Union. The advantage of being independent in the European Union is uh, not that you always get your own way, but that you can look to build alliances to progress the kind of policies that, that matter to you. Um, and as uh, you will know, and it uh, was uh, controversial, we want, subject to uh, our commitment to no nuclear weapons in Scotland, to pay our part through uh, NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organisation. So we consider ourselves to be internationalists. We're a small country, but we've got um, a lot to offer the world on climate change, uh, just as, as one example. Uh, and we can do that by building alliances uh, across uh, Europe and the world and doing it, speaking with our own voice. So we're uh, described as a nationalist party, but I actually describe myself as a, an independent supporter more than uh, a nationalist. But we are uh, intensely internationalist in our outlook and in our uh, willingness and determination and keenness to contribute to the, the greater good of uh, the world. So the young lady there... My question is actually quite similar. Uh, my name is Shannon. I'm a student at Edinburgh, but I've just come back from a year abroad. Um, I've been travelling around North America, and so I've managed to witness firsthand the fascination with Scottish culture, which is great. But in terms of the status quo, the UK, as the United Kingdom, does have such a large reputation worldwide. And what would you say to those of us who are worried that we may lose out on the information, the security, the, secu the seat on the UN Council, all these things that the UK has, which Scotland would then lose out on, and if we would then had a renewed par partnership with a more sceptical Westminster, if you say. I don't think the partnership that we would have with our friends across the UK would be sceptical. I think there's a lot of uh, debate this side of the referendum. I think, as I was saying after the referendum, I think the tone of that would be very different. I'm not sure it's any great surprise that uh, Scotland's profile internationally is perhaps not as, I think it's got a great profile internationally and Scotland is probably for countries of our size you know very well known and understood right across the, the globe because so many of us have gone to settle in all four corners of, of the world so I think for a small country we've actually got a very strong international presence and international profile but we've not been a, an independent country for 300 plus years we've not been independently represented in these organizations so it's probably no surprise that we're not seen as that uh, independent nation. Um, I, I think being independent allows you to find your place in the world. It allows you, you, you can't, and I think this is true of big countries just as it's true of small countries in the modern world, you don't achieve anything unilaterally. You have to build the alliances that allow you to achieve uh, your objectives. But as an independent country, you can decide what those objectives are, what those strategic goals and, and aims are, and build the alliances to try to uh, better achieve them. Um, you know, I, I don't think a country uh, like Scotland as an independent country would have a claim to a seat on a permanent seat on the UN Security Council. So, you know, there you go. I'm not uh, claiming that. Equally, uh, I've would have no uh, desire to see the UK lose its seat, permanent seat on the UK Security Council. I think there are probably uh, other forces in the, the world uh, rather than Scotland that have an issue with uh, the UK seat on the Security Council. We have no uh, argument with it. So we want to work with our closest neighbours, but we want to have the ability to set our priorities and work to build the alliances that allow us to achieve them. And I think we can uh, do that, as I said before, albeit as a small country, but one that has uh, an international profile and presence that we'd be able to build on. So we can ask my question to the young lady there. Hi, 
Hi, my name is Hannah Ellix and I also study international relations, um, but I just finished up here at Edinburgh. Um, I've lived in Scotland for four years, but I'm originally from Quebec. From Quebec. Um, and so my question relates to your point about independence being a logical continuation of devolution. Um, being from Quebec, which has a larger population and stronger independent relations with sovereign states, such as France and even Britain, and even a greater degree of devolution, um, why do you believe that, yes, Scotland will be able to win a referendum in Scotland when the past year they failed to fail twice in Quebec? Well, I mean, I, I, I'm not my comment should be taken as any criticism of uh, Parti Quebecois and the Quebec referendum. Scotland is not Quebec. Scotland is not Catalonia. Our circumstances are, are different uh, and uh, unique and uh, I think that has to be uh, borne in mind. There were particular, and I'm not going to try and tell you what the circumstances were in certainly the most recent Quebec referendum because you'll know far better uh, than I do, but you know the language issues for example are not, uh, not the same issue in Scotland as, as in Quebec. We have a particular constitutional arrangement in the UK. Scotland is a nation. Uh, we have always been a nation. Our nationhood is, is not questioned. It's whether we want to become an independent state to accompany that nationhood. So the circumstances are different. I, you know, I've set out some of them. Uh, the democratic deficit, the fact that we have a parliament here that we can build on, um, and this, the arguments that will be made in some cases, I'm sure, will sound familiar to people who've lived through a Quebec referendum. They'll sound familiar to uh, people in Catalonia just now who may have their own referendum at some time in the not-too-distant future. But our circumstances are different to both of those examples. The arguments will be different, the debates will be different, um, and the factors that people take into account will be different as well. Nicola, you, you make much of the Council of the Arts. Can I suggest that the Council of the Arts may prove to be, um, to use Biden's uh, terminology, a dignified part of the Constitution? In other words, it will symbolically important to prove to be less useful in terms of relations with London. And indeed, that the, the most important relations with London post independence will be bilateral between Edinburgh and London. And that that will be built on much firmer ground, indeed, than um, the Council of the Isles, based on um, the existing uh, intergovernmental relations, the daily relations that take place between civil servants and services ministers, that that will be the more effective, again, to, to borrow from back the effective part of the I agree with that very much. I mean, I, I made much, uh, as you say, about uh, the Council of the Isles, the British-Irish Council, but I went on to talk about some of the very practical ways, just as examples of how the Scottish Government and the UK Government already work together uh, on a day-to-day -day basis on a whole range of issues. I mean, what we've got to remember in all of this is that in large parts of public policy, Scotland is, to all intents and purposes, already independent. Uh, you know, when I was Health Secretary, I was effectively running an area of policy that was independent and I worked very closely when circumstances required it with my counterpart uh, in Westminster, with my counterparts in, in Wales and Northern Ireland on a day-to-day -day basis. Scottish Government civil servants, Scottish Government ministers will have very close uh, interactions, working relationships with their, their counterparts uh, in Westminster and Whitehall. Uh, and one of the interesting things, and again I'm not being pejorative or particularly critical about this, is how infrequently those discussions are rooted through the Scotland office. Almost never. They are bilateral and they are direct. Uh, and that will be as true when we're independent in the currently reserved areas, I'm absolutely sure, as it is true just now on the areas where we already have devolved independent powers. Thanks for the last question here.
Thank you very much. My name is Ben Hexon. I'm a student at New Valley College and then studying politics and sociology. But two um, separate questions for the Deputy Prime Minister. And if I leave, thank you very much for your speech, which was clear and level headed and it's a refreshing change to hear politicians speak so clearly. And firstly, uh, one of the questions that I've um, came across was um, there's a, a significant um, pro unionist um, argument um, saying that it's disingenuous to hold a, a position of a removal of nuclear weapons from Scottish waters while at the same time seeking the protection of NATO. And another point is um, personally interested in the uh, Scottish Constitution. Um, one of the benefits that's argued about a UK Constitution is the fact that it's not written and codified in any one document. It's a, an amalgam of different things and can be used at different junctures to, to um, uh, solve any difficult constitutional issues. Uh, one of the things that's came through from the Yes campaign is the is agreement on a written and codified Scottish Constitution. And how would you see um, the process, procedure, the style of a, of a Scottish Constitution taking place um, were it to be a, a yes vote for independence? Okay, thanks, Fred. Um, on your first question, I don't see anything inconsistent at all in a decision that we would want to play our part as partners with uh, allies in NATO but not want to have nuclear weapons in Scotland. If it was inconsistent, then the majority of current NATO members couldn't be members of NATO because they don't have nuclear weapons. Some, like Norway, have, like uh, my own party in Scotland does, has very uh, principled positions on nuclear weapons. So, you know, the, the reality is there uh, to be seen. And, you know, I think it's a, a perfectly uh, credible position to hold. And, you know, in, in these days in, in politics, uh, we're often criticised for not holding uh, to principles that are dear to us. And for me, uh, I've always believed in, in independence, but I've always been a passionate opponent of, of nuclear weapons. I, you know, in the Cold War, just maybe there was some kind of logical case, albeit I still think it's pretty immoral to have weapons that could wipe out mass swathes of civilization. But today, with the threats that we face, uh, nuclear weapons are not only immoral, in my view, they, are, they have no practical justification. And if we stay within the UK, if, if we don't have a yes vote next year, we're going to see uh, inevitably and undoubtedly a decision taken to spend hundreds of millions of pounds on renewing the Trident nuclear system at a time when we're trying to persuade other countries to give up nuclear weapons. So I think Scotland here can lead by example and can do it uh, from a point of principle. Um, in your second point, I believe and the Scottish Government uh, has said that we would like an independent Scotland to have a written constitution. I think it's one of the opportunities that we can get from independence to move away from the unwritten uh, constitution of the UK to a written constitution that enshrines rights and protections. What I don't want to do and what the Scottish Government will not do in the period running up to the referendum is get overly prescriptive about what that constitution should say. We certainly won't try to write that constitution. We've given some suggestions about what we would like to see in it, but the constitution will be something for the Parliament in an independent Scotland to decide the process of how that is drawn up and then for Civic Scotland, Political Scotland and wider Scotland to be involved in drawing up that constitution. But, you know, it's one of the things that I think is uh, an argument for being an independent country to have that constitution that reflects and gives expression to who you are as a country. I'm very pleased uh, to, to thank the Deputy First Minister on behalf of the Academy of Government, on behalf of the university, uh, for coming along to, to talk to us tonight to make the case uh, so clearly, so powerfully, and also to engage with us in what were excellent questions from 
the floor. It's very much appreciated. We realise how valuable your time is. I was reflecting the other day, I had a memory of first hearing you talk on Radio 1, I think it was, when I was an undergraduate student, and I think you were probably the youngest, one of the youngest parliamentary candidates of the election of that year. I won't say which election it was, that would embarrass us both. Um, but I remember it was even obvious then that you were a politician that had a very bright future, and we've watched you grow in stature over the years since then to become one of the most talented politicians in Scotland, one who is widely respected across the political spectrum. So thank you very much uh, for coming along tonight. Thank you also for your kind words about the Academy of Government. We're very uh, committed uh, in this debate to using the wealth of expertise uh, that we have in the research community at the university to help to inform uh, the debate and to help uh, uh, use new research and to use the university as a safe place uh, for debate on the issues at stake. There will be many more opportunities uh, to do so and we will publicise those widely in the months ahead. Uh, so thanks all of you for coming along tonight as well on what is a glorious evening. I'm sure uh, you can now go and enjoy the, what's left of the sunshine. Um, but if you can all join me please in thanking the Deputy First Minister in the usual way. Thank you. Thank you.